as someone who is so excited to garden this spring yet really wants top quality soil i'm really excited to introduce you to coast of maine which is an esteemed brand renowned for its organic soil offerings and if you're seeking to infuse your home environment with a nourishing essence that promotes flourishing plant life you're gonna want to listen to this because with over 28 years of expertise coast of maine has meticulously crafted soils sourced from oceanic waters and farms certified for organic organic cultivation. It's so nice to find such a sustainable, eco-friendly brand who really emphasizes the importance of natural ingredients to enrich their soil. And I mean, they have, like I said, top quality. With rigorous quality control and OMRI listed certification, their diverse range of products caters to all gardening needs. Most of our soils may lack appropriate nutrients for success for our plants and our plants need this. We want to regenerate the healthy microbes in our soils to set up for gardening success and just for our plants to thrive. So if we add Coast of Maine products, this will indeed help. Whether you're planting trees or shrubs or perennials in your yard, adding Coast of Maine soil in your planting holes leads to a long, slow feeding of your plants, making them self-sufficient and vibrant, which we love. Let's say you want a vegetable garden. Not only will you receive abundant harvest, but there will be less feeding and maintenance throughout the season. Amazing. You know that everything grown in Coast of Maine soil is organic and safe for your family and friends right out of the garden. And then you get to also feel good about their sourcing as I'm so thankful they provide natural ingredients because they will never include household waste or biosolids. And we know that nothing nurtures the world above better than the soil below cultivated from products and practices rooted in coast of Maine. And so they will continually perfect the art and science of sourcing, mixing, and composting products worthy of the people and the place that inspired their brand and the healthier world it was built to serve. Coast of Maine believes in nurturing relationships with local retailers. We love supporting local and the products are carried by local retail partners who can provide advice and insight not found in big box stores. So Coast of Maine knows from beginner to expert. Anyone who takes a hand to the land has something to offer the growing community of gardeners everywhere. And their products make organic gardening simple and approachable so we can all garden. So let's get to growing. Visit coastofmaine.com to find a local retailer near you. That's Coast of Maine, like the state with an E, coastofmaine.com. I'm all about that fuss-free glam. Give me makeup that's versatile and feels like air on my skin and has ingredients that love my face, that's good for my face. You know, clean ingredients. And don't even get me started on mascaras because I do want them bold and lengthening. <laughs> and so we have Thrive Cosmetics, which I've been using since 2020, obviously because I appreciate their foolproof products that make it really easy to apply for any skill level. And they have a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look, but also they give back. Every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive, hence why it's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E, Medics. Thrive Cosmetics and Bigger Than Beauty Skincare are not just makeup brands, they're a whole vibe. They're all about empowering us to rock our confidence, and when you support them, we are helping other communities thrive. Their stuff is not only easy to use, but 
no nasties, zero parabens, sulfites, phthalates. They are 100% vegan and cruelty-free. Let's talk lashes. Thanks to Thrive's liquid lash extensions, I must say that my lashes are just so beautiful and lush. It adds lengths. There are no clumps. And also, guess what? It slides right off with warm water. So no raccoon eyes here. And I appreciate they have nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. And it's a unique formula they use that creates these tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. We've had problems in the past with the link, but the link does work now. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com magic. That's Thrive Cosmetics. C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash magic for 10% off your first order. Hello, magical friends. I'm Allie Michelle. And I'm Raquel Mantra. And welcome to Your Own Magic Podcast. Our intention is to connect you with the most inspiring thought leaders and visionaries and share some of our experiences and wisdom to help you unleash your own magic. Yes, we're so grateful you're spending this present moment with us today. You know, at the beginning of my path, I had doubts on spiritual practice and whatnot whether or not it was worth it. You know, my struggle was, do I want to just keep living materially and in my ego and having these physical enjoyments or do I want to actually devote myself to something deeper? And that's, like, that's like quite a while to really can really understand and, and bear witness to the fruits of the spiritual practice. Even when we get from black to white, you might think they're separate, but the shades of gray in between reconnecting becomes a spectrum, almost like a circle. So reality is like that. All these ideas of duality, of separateness that we perceive are part of a larger spectrum that we have to come to understand as interconnected. And we'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. If you follow us on Instagram and watch our stories, you know that we're quite the pancake connoisseurs and we love to make vegan protein pancakes with Organifi's delicious chocolate complete protein powder. We are also in love with their superfood green juice powder because even if you're eating veggies all the time, they lose a ton of nutritional value by the time we actually eat them and not all of us have the time or the means to get all natural fresh organic vegetables that our bodies deserve which is why it has become part of our morning routine to use Organifi's delicious green juice mm, yes and I am crazy about their red juice that seriously tastes like Kool-Aid but a healthy Kool-Aid that is just packed with antioxidants and immune boosting herbs and we just want to hook you guys up with this amazing product so Organifi is giving our listeners 20% off your purchase so go to to Organifi.com and use our code MAGIC at checkout. That is Organifi.com code MAGIC. Now let the magic begin. Hello, magical friends. We are here with our friend Koi Fresco, who is wise beyond his years. He is one of the leading spiritual educators in the social media space, sharing his wisdom with over half a million people around the globe. And he is the author of A Not-So-Enlightened Youth and educates people on a variety of topics to help people on their personal and spiritual journeys. And we admire Koi for not being afraid to speak his truth and gifting the world his knowledge through videos that are not only informative and entertaining, but sometimes 
controversial. We like to listen to Koi's YouTube channel to expand our minds and get an in-depth understanding of topics that interest us most, such as meditation, letting go of the ego, opening up the third eye, how to astral project your lucid dream, and overall how to be a more compassionate being. Forgiven and Awakened. Yes. So, hi, Koi. Thank you so much for joining us. Rom, Rom. Hello. How are you guys today? Oh, so good. So excited to talk to you. We've Thank missed you. you. Thank you for that intro. That was really sweet. We're just, like, more excited, honestly, to hear your wisdom, actually, because we've been wanting to talk to you about so many things, because on your YouTube channel, you just have a variety of topics that are so juicy, and we want to pick your brain right now <laughs> for some good golden nuggets. <laughs> but first, first, like, word has it, well, because we were stalking your Twitter, and according to your Twitter, you have a new meditation book that is coming out soon, right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, my first book came out last summer, like you just said, it's called A Not-So-Enlightened Youth. It's kind of half biography of my life, and the other half is, you know, the steps I took initially starting my journey to start awakening and, and getting into a hard space to live through. Uh, this second book is coming out on the 11th. Uh, I'm not going to give away the title yet, but it's a book that is going to be really short, maybe 60, 70 pages. But it's a comprehensive guide of meditation and how to meditate with a couple of different methods. So it's going to be a really simple book that pretty much anybody can pick up and use to go to if they're having trouble meditating and they're wanting to learn how to meditate. That's what it's going to be. And oh. So I'm really excited to release that on the, uh, the 11th of November. So the 11th of November. Mark your calendars. I love that. I'm going to mark my calendar. I'm going to order it. Um, what is it called, by the way? Oh, he said he's not well, uh, close, Actually, you guys are the first ones to know the title. So it's <gasps> called uh, The Meditation Manual. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. So and this is, this is, yeah, I guess this is where I'm announcing the title of the book, The Meditation Manual. <gasps> Oh my gosh, thank you so much for the exclusive. We're honored. <laughs> You're the first ones to ask a question about it, so thank you. <laughs> and I think it's something that the world really needs right now, so thank you for being of service and putting that out there. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I, I personally see meditation as the number one tool for virtually anything going on in life. I, I would say at least half of all the questions I've ever gotten, I can somehow reference back to meditation. So I figured... You know, meditation is supposed to be simple, and I've seen a lot of books and a lot of stuff online that are you know, 300, 400 pages long, and it's really not that deep. It can be, but it doesn't need to be, and that only, for us, especially in the West, it, when we get too much in our mind, we start to overcomplicate a really simple thing ourselves. So I wanted the book to just be really straightforward, really simple, really short, but to the point at the same time. So I'm excited to get it out there. I've been working nonstop on it for a couple of months. That's amazing. I think the most simple truths are the most powerful ones. And I would love to hear more about how your meditation practice has evolved since the beginning of your journey. Oh, it's a lot. Um, the, the biggest thing I, I realized, and this is another reason, again, for the book, is that meditation is something you can't force. You, know, you can't force any certain method of meditation to work. And I think of a lot of, a lot of the times, especially we get really locked in our ego. So we get really locked in this sense of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make this work. But meditation is one of those practices that you can't dictate whether it is or isn't working. You enter a meditative state, and when you come out of that, you have abilities to reference it. Kind of like how you can be in a dream, right? You can have a dream, but you're not you know, conscious of that dream initially. But when you wake up, you go, oh, you can analyze that dream. You can take little pieces of that dream and, and use them and see what they might mean. Meditation is kind of the same. When we enter a meditative state, 
but we're just there with the meditation. We're in this single mind, this is one point, this it's called dhyana, just single focus. And then when we come back from it, it's something that we can, you know, talk to ourselves about and really feel what it felt to be in that state and kind of conceptualize it. But starting for me especially, I, I was very misled personally with meditation because I identified when I began meditation with, you know, the effects of meditation, the physical feeling, you know, the, the, the sensations, oh, my body feels good, you know, oh, I'm happy right now, I'm giggling. And, and yes. we get kind of lost in that when we start, you know, we get lost in the experience of meditation rather than the actual meditative state. And that's something I didn't even realize wasn't meditation or was holding me back from truly transcending that last plateau to reach a meditative state for a couple of years. You know, no one ever told me that, hey, the physical sensations you're experiencing in meditation aren't meditation if you are identifying with them. And it really kind of opened a lot of gateways for me when I heard that. <laughs> wow. I remember, actually, you were the first person that told me that wise tale of maybe, maybe not, because it was one of your tattoos. And so yeah. I think of that with meditation, like how you're describing it as really taking the seat of the witness, of the neutral observer. Yes, exactly. And that includes, you know, it's hard for us because we want... No matter what we do, and this is one of the hardest things for us to break free of in the West, is we want neutral to be positive, when neutral isn't negative or positive. So if we're trying to be the witness, we want to be the happy witness, you know, or the excited witness, or the, or the, the feel-good witness. But that's still a conditioned version of the witness. The same way being a negative witness, we would notice it right away. We always kind of subliminally want the neutral state to be a positive state. But that identification is what kind of tips the scales and makes us feel uneven and wondering why we don't have control of the negative if we can feel the positive so so often. So meditation is a great way to really throw that that misconception out the window. And like you said with the maybe, maybe not story, um, it's a little different, but it just it shows that where we are might be right, it might not be right. It might be correct, it might be incorrect, but it's that's why it's so important to continue to come back to this the middle ground so we can start to see what is and what is not working for us, I guess, on, on a really, really neutral level, on a heart space level that, you know, you can't really see otherwise if you are in one of these two states, albeit positive or negative. Hmm, so it's always remaining at the center. And what do you do when you recognize that your ego might be taking over and stopping you from being aligned with that highest self, that centered place? How do you shift your perspective or overcome that? Well, the, big, the biggest thing, the biggest way that I try to overcome things like that is what we have to see is the number one reason we are in our ego and we sit in our ego, and the easiest way to recognize ego, whether it be meditation or anything, is where our validation stems from. Mm. That's the biggest thing I've learned, right? If we're in the ego, we are seeking self-validation externally. That's the number one thing you can always <laughs> to see whether or not you are in your ego, is if... And is what I'm seeking outside of my heart, is what I'm seeking outside of, of me as the witness. And if it is, we're in the ego. But on the flip side, it makes it very easy to start to work past that level and come back to the witness because when we recognize what really matters and what we really are, which is just divine nature, all is divine, you know, so that means the internal is too. So if we're already all of it, we don't have to seek externally. Since we know we are all of that, and that, that is all a connection and an um, extension of us, that validation can switch inward. And when it switches inward, it rids itself of all these, these external things we usually want, right? To be famous, to be special, to be unique, to be creative, to get compliments, to look good. 
those yeah. all start to fade away and we kind of drop back into the heart, which has one validation that is to love and be loved. Just to love completely and to be the state of love. Not be love in the sense of wanting love, but to literally be love. As in, I am love. Mm-hmm. And, and that is those two things, just recognizing where your validation stems from is the number one way of recognizing ego. It, it's kind of like a cheat sheet to recognizing ego. So if you're living in your heart space, there's no external validation needed. It's just all coming from within. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like how when when we're creating content like this, right? If we're doing something that is not rooted in the heart, we're going to always have the external validations creeping in because we're going to have a little bit of doubt somewhere within us, no matter what. But when you know what you're doing is being done fully with love and as lovingly as possible, doubt doesn't exist. You know, if I'm working on a lecture and I truly think what I'm speaking about is important, I don't doubt what I'm saying. The same way I'm sure you guys don't doubt the validity and the importance of this podcast because you know how many people it helps. You understand that the words you are trying to use in these conversations are words that will help others live a better life. And so there's no seeking of validation anywhere in that. That's kind of, again, how we can notice. And that's why, to me, it's so important and so prevalent that we can use it so uh consistently (laughs) Hmm. so doubt dissolves the more that you become connected to your heart and are living from that pure intention and that really empowered state yes exactly purity doesn't doesn't have doubt that's why you know many many gurus over many many years you don't sit there and go i wonder if i'm a good guru yeah my students are learning from me. No, they just know what they're doing is coming from their heart, so they do it. That's mm-hmm. why they aren't lost in anything but the moment. That's how they can live so compassionately. They aren't lost in anything but the moment. Gosh, I love that. And speaking of gurus, you have such a wild story <laughs> yourself that has led you down this inspiring path towards spirituality and enlightenment. And it sounds like it didn't start so light. So do you mind rewinding a bit and telling us a bit how your journey started? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I talk, I'll I'll try to cover a a little bit of it, but I talk more about it in my first book. But um, in the majority part, I was very, very egoic um, growing up and in high school especially. I still have a lot of things about me that I'm currently working on that I have no problem, you know, admitting to. Cool, you're human? What? Believe it or not, I am. I am a human. I I am a big flesh puppet with consciousness. (laughs) (laughs) I'm writing that one down. All right, flesh puppet, keep going. All right, so um, long story short, I, I lost two friends in high school. They were murdered, actually, both of them, which is something unheard of where I grew up. It was a very, very conservative, very um, uh, Caucasian city with mm-hmm. no violence, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, I, at that age, I didn't have the ability at 16 years old to really understand why this was happening, and so I got very bitter. And that bitterness led me to seek um, a way of escape, right? I got into escapism. I needed to escape. When we're faced with things we don't know how to handle, we want to escape. We want to get away from it. Facing things takes a lot of effort to cultivate from within. So I escaped into drugs, um, more partying, more validation through my ego, um, becoming the coolest person, being able to do the most drugs, all these all these self-depreciating um, things that I wasn't aware of as depreciating. I saw them as, you know, kind of... Um, tools in a sense then which just shows how skewed my yeah. mind was. yeah but what happened was i got a dui the, uh, the details again 
are in the book. There's a lot of details. But I got a DUI. My friends got hurt in the car. And so I had to go to jail for about a year. And wow. so in jail, that really woke me up in a lot of ways, being incarcerated, because I saw just how, how, I guess, how much farther south life could go. Because I was only in there for a year, but I was behind bars with people that were going away for life, going away for 30 years, that had been in and out of jail for their entire life. And I got a lot of insight into what it meant to, you know, be so attached to your ego that you continue to do all these things that lead to nothing but progressive repercussions. Uh, and I discovered while I was in jail a little bit about Taoism, and I had already been kind of slightly researching Buddhism before that. So that combined really just piqued my interest a lot. And so when I got out, I just felt when I got out that I, I had so much to do for the world to make up for not only my issues that I had faced, but the ways I had hurt people in the past. Uh, and so I really dove into education and learning mm-hmm. about all these different philosophies, mainly Buddhism at the time. And that just evolved and evolved and evolved until uh, I started my channel about two and a half years ago to start sharing what I was experiencing, what I was learning. And yeah, now here we are, I think two years past that, and it's just a beautiful, amazing journey and crazy, crazy ride, but I I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I'm honestly so thankful for that (laughs) terrible journey of yours, only because look at what you have done for the world. It's honestly so admirable and you are healing so many people. And we do want to talk later a little bit about your interest in Buddhism because that is, you are so insightful that and you can definitely uh, give people a little more in-depth insight about it. But first, like I do want to, you talked about a lot about self-deprecation and how, so how would you encourage someone who suffers from a lot of self-loathing and self-deprecation to begin the path of learning about their highest self and cultivate love for their self? Well, that's, that's why I wrote the book on meditation. <laughs> mm, look at you. <laughs> The biggest thing, and this is, like I said, so many questions that we think need to be so esoteric or so philosophical really just come back to awakening the internal truth of what we are, to recognizing it. And that starts with meditation. Meditation was what got me into spirituality with all the stuff I was learning about. Because, as I said, I was really into drugs growing up, you know, lots of different drugs. And I remember, once I got out of jail, I actually sat down after a few weeks of learning about it and meditated for the first time. And... When I came out of that meditation, the physical sensations remind just they, they reminded me so much of the potency of some of the drugs I had done. It blew my mind to know that my natural state was this level of bliss. It was mm-hmm. this intense, this strong. And so I didn't understand what that was or how that could be. And that's what really started to get me to dive into that possibility. So if, if we're lost, if we don't understand who we are, if, if we're loathing and confused, it's again because on that level of validation that we seek externally, we're not receiving what we want. It's kind of like how if, if we like somebody, we want to be with them, and they don't like us back. Since we aren't receiving what we want, we see it as a problem with us. We see that as, as an issue with who we are in this body, with what we say, with how we act. We start to break down ourselves. When in reality, you know, these kind of situations are just as normal. Good things happen, bad things happen. Uh, we get what we want, we don't get what we want. It's, it's very common. It's, it's a relationship between the two. So, so when we start to dive within, right, to sit and inquire at the true nature of who I am, saying, who am I, or just breathing, kind of feeling what it feels to just be here with the breath and everything else going on around us, we start to really awaken our true nature, which is love, to be in this moment, to be in mm-hmm. space, we start to feel it. 
And when we can feel that, it becomes this sort of intuitive understanding over time. Uh, the same way that, you know, you don't, if once you have a loved one, if you've been with somebody for years and years, you have a family member, you know, you know, when you see your mom or your dad and you give them a hug, you don't have to say, I love you every single time. You intuitively understand the love that is there. Yes. It's present. Mm-hmm. You feel it, but you don't have to use words to describe it. That's how and what we discover internally as well when we sit in meditation, when we sit in self-inquiry. We start to really intuitively just come to an understanding of how special this conscious experience is, that we are the divine in a human form, Atman as Brahman, as they say in Hinduism, you know, the, the, the small soul as an expression or representation of the entire universe, in a sense. We are all of it, we're just playing out this role of being part of it, and we're not aware that we're all of it. But when we sit in silence, when we sit with a focus on a mantra, such as, you know, I am love, or it's one of the names of the many Hindu deities, uh, Krishna, Rama, Kali, whichever you prefer, we start to awaken this realization. It starts to fill us, sort of how, you know, you might download something. We are downloading truth from the universe, and it's something that sounds ridiculous until you sit and actually start to practice it. And when you get that understanding internally, when you start to really intuitively feel that love, you know your infinite, and that's it. You understand you are infinite. And so all of those external things that we dislike about us start to become less and less important because what is inside starts to take priority over it. Hmm. So all that we recognize that all that's not love is not real, essentially. And meditation awakens us to this natural state of infinity and of love. Yeah, that's yes, why a lot is. of alcoholics and a lot of alcoholics and drug abusers turn to yoga and meditation. To that's one thing that I've learned about my yoga practice is when I enter a class, I've met a lot of people that were had a similar path as yours such as abusing alcohol and drugs but then they found yoga and meditation and now they're on this beautiful path yes there's a, actually um one of the, the, the first line and um it's called the, a course in miracles i'm not sure if you've heard it oh so, yeah yes. we we're reading it. it together <laughs> yeah so i'm sure you know the first line pretty much goes nothing real can be threatened nothing unreal exists herein lies the peace in god or the peace in existence is a better word for those so that's kind of the simply that's as simple as it gets what is real has always been real always will be and nothing unreal exists those are all just aspects of mind or delusions that we have in the mind when you open your eyes and all you see is love your eyes are truly open (laughs) (laughs) precisely we would love to hear some of your favorite meditations or the ones that are resonating most deeply in your heart right now um alright so I practice a few types of mantras and a few types of meditations. The first meditation that I practice the most because it's it's the most potent to me is, is Java meditation or mantra meditations. And those can be practiced on mala beads. You can find mala beads on Amazon, online, on Etsy, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wearing mine right now. For some reason, yeah. I felt like putting it on for this interview. I haven't worn these in a while, actually. <laughs> yeah, so what a lot of people do is they keep their Java beads on their, around their neck or in a, in a Java bag. And what you do is, when you wake up, before you're going to sleep, or after a meal, whenever, whenever, usually we don't think about divinity. You know, the, the areas where maybe we're, we're busy or we want to get ready with something else, it's important to use those times to practice mantra meditations. And these mala, these malas have 108 beads on them, one bead being the guru bead, 
or the main meaning. So what we do is we start with a mantra and an affirmation, and this can be whatever you want. Again, it can be an English phrase, you know, I am infinity, I am the universe, or I am God, or I am beautiful, or I will grow today, anything you want. Or it can be one of the many, many um, mantras that are used in, in, um, in India and in Hinduism that represent these divine aspects of, of chanting, such as Ram, 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 Krishna, 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 Kali, 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 and mm-hmm. anything you And so you just bring your mind to a space of love or to a space of really embracing that saying, and you chant it. You sit down, you just cross your legs on a normal mat or on your couch or even walking around. You know, many Christian monks walk around and chant. And, and you can either chant internally to yourself, as Swami Muttananda likes to say, you know, the internal chanting in our mind is for our internal self, for our soul. And external chanting is actually chanting to the universe, actually letting the physical resonance come out of our mouth and, and integrate with all of reality around us. So it's whichever one you think is more powerful. Either you chant it in your mind or you chant it out loud. And so you sit with these beads and you simply... Put them between your um, your pointer finger and middle finger, mm-hmm. and you hold it kind of above your middle finger, and you start pulling it back towards you beat by beat, taking slow breaths with each beat. And so each breath in, on the exhale, we go, you know, wrong. Breathe in, pull the beat. Exhale, wrong. Or, you know, I am whole. I am whole. I am whole. And we just stick with that exact thought, that exact feeling, that exact mantra the entire way through. You know, when we begin, we're going to obviously start thinking of other things, our mind's going to wander, but such is, you know, such is humanity, such is being a human having a mind, it will wander when we start a new practice. But we just bring it back. Once we recognize it somewhere else, we don't chastise ourselves, we don't yell at ourselves, we just bring our mind back to the mantra, back to whatever the divine saying is we want to say. And we bring our emotions back to love. And so we just go through the beats all the way through, slowly, until we reach 108. And then what we can do, if it, for a lot of people starting, I say do one round, they're called rounds. So when you do the entire 108 and you get to the guru beat, you're supposed to turn the mala beat around and go back the other way. You never cross mm. over. Do you begin now, at the guru beat though? Or do you just end there? You end there. You okay. Begin, well, you, it really doesn't matter uh, if you begin or end on it, but mm-hmm. what you want to do is once you get to it and you hold the guru beat, you want to just go back the other direction. All right. I'm going to do this after this interview with okay. this mala bead that's around my neck. And it's also a great way for people to get into long periods of meditation because when you're chanting on it, time goes by a little bit faster than when we're just sitting and breathing. But 108 rounds can take sometimes 15, 20 minutes. So if you do, you know, five, six rounds of japa, you've just done an hour plus of a pure loving meditation. And it really does start to fly by. Uh, and it's it's amazing how you, you can do this many rounds and look up and you've been like, wow, I've been sitting here for an hour and a half. And it feels like no time has gone. So... That is such a powerful, powerful tool because I think one of the most common things that I hear is um, they'll be sitting for like five minutes just trying to watch their breath. And it's kind of like an eat, pray, love where she looks at the clock and 30 seconds have gone by. (laughs) So that's perfect. Um, So I believe you spent some time with Ram Dass. And for anyone who doesn't know who this is, can you talk about his impact on the world and your life personally and some of the nuggets that you learned from your time with him? Yeah, actually, well, I haven't been with him in the body yet, but I have Skyped with him um, and been in his presence that way quite a few times. But, but Ram Dass 
was a student of Maharaji, or Neem Karoli Baba, who, who was a guru in India in the 1960s and 70s. And the difference between Maharaji and many other teachers is that Maharaji, not only did he not write, but he didn't lecture. He didn't give these detailed, detailed talks on all these philosophies and ways of life and complicated stuff that we see now. You know, even, even what I talk about can be complicated sometimes, but he did none of this. All he did was sit. He just sat there and hung out and it was very, very plain with what he said. And he, what he would always say is that love is what awakens us. You know, love everybody, serve everybody, remember God, remember your divine nature is more so what he meant. People would ask him, you know, how do I attain enlightenment? And he would say, you love people and you feed them. That's all it is. You just love everyone, love everything, remember what you are, and just be that. And that's all he would ever reiterate, all the time. You know, he would just want people to be with love. There actually were stories where Maharaji would, people would come to meditate in front of Maharaji, including Ram Dass, and he would hit them with fruit and say, yo, stop meditating. <laughs> You're here with me, and you're already trying to be somewhere else. You know, <laughs> That's embrace, brilliant. Yeah, let's embrace what is here and now. And so Ramdas really was just absolutely blown away by by the ways Maharaji could transmit this this guru nature, this guru teaching to him. And he did so more without words than with words. This is why so many Maharaji's uh, disciples are still very, very spread out across the West. You know, it's a uh, Lama Suryadas Das was a student of Maharaji, Jack Kornfield, uh, Ron oh, really? Krishna Das, the Kirtan singer, Ram Das. There are so many of his students that are still just spreading that love that Maharaji instilled in them. And he did so without ever lecturing, which I think is amazing. It was just the presence. And Ram Das came back and he wrote a book called Be Here Now, which is, if you haven't read, Be Here Now is pretty much the spiritual Bible. It's the go-to book for spiritual, spirituality for starting your journey. And the best part about it is that you can come back to it after years and years of personal evolution, and it still has tidbits of information that you start to take away from it as you progress in your own path. And that's just what he's been doing ever since, lecturing, writing books on spiritual awakening, on living from the heart center, on practicing bhakti yoga, or the yoga of devotional love to mm. the universe, all you know, the people on the earth, and to all the animals on the earth as well. Um, and that's just what he always did, and he's you know he's 87 and he's still doing it, still teaching. And I, I up until that point, he was one of the first spiritual teachers that I really associated with in the Western sense. Him and Alan Watts, uh, beginning. <laughs> but, oh, Alan Watts, that was my first yeah. uh, intro to that world. <laughs> Miss yeah. Allie Watts over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean, my my cat's name is Watts after yeah. Alan. Oh, that's amazing. How it's, is Watts? <laughs> Watts is beautiful. <laughs> he's doing great. But, um, so what happened is, you know, I, I always heard all these stories about gurus and, you know, these emotions that just surge over you when you're in the presence of them. And my skeptical mind was, you know, didn't think that was a real thing. Maybe it was just overstatement of people making claims, but I never really took it seriously. Um, and I went to a, a retreat and a lot of what I teach has to do with the teachings of Ram Dass and, and the teachings of Maharaji because I just, I feel them in my heart so deeply, so intuitively. Yeah. There's kind of a, a lineage there that I'm, I'm blessed to be a part of and I'm blessed to work with Be Here Now Foundation on a lot of stuff that we'll be doing in the future. But when I, when I ended up Skyping with him for the first time, it was the first time in my life I had really felt the presence of somebody who sits with half his foot in the door and half his foot out of the door of divinity, of infinite everythingness, and, and knowing that he is actually it, all of it, beyond the identity, beyond the ego. And it was just a surreal experience, you know, I was sitting there, I wasn't even in the physical, which made it even more extreme. I was just Skyping with him, and I just 
I was almost crying. I was so happy. I just quit. My face hurt. I was smiling so big. I realized what it meant to actually surrender in that moment because at that time when I was speaking to him, I just, in my brain, all I was thinking was I could sit at the feet of this this soul for the rest of my life and I would have the most blissful life ever. <laughs> I could just sit here forever and I would be, I would, I would be open to doing that right now. And it was like an experience I had never really understood before, that level of surrendering to what you understand as true love and as, as infinite love. It's cosmic ananda bliss, as they call it in Hinduism. But it was, it was a surreal moment, a surreal experience, and it really kind of revitalized my practice and made me kind of understand that there are these, these experiences that we have that can't be summed up in words, that can't be written into a book. We can get guidance, but that guidance can only take us so far until we have the ability to have an actual physical interaction with a situation such as that, that kind of seals the deal, so to speak, really makes us understand what it is all of this this love mumbo jumbo <laughs> is about. Hmm, that's one of my favorite quotes, actually, is knowledge isn't wisdom until it lives in the muscle, and it sounds like you got to experience this universal intimacy with love, with source, and I mean, both of both of you, like, to reference The Course in Miracles, are those universal instruments of love and are just pouring out those reminders to the world that we are all love, we are all that. And so, again, I honor you and thank you. And I noticed um, you actually have a lot of videos on Buddhism. So I wanted to know what made you interested in Buddhism in particular and if you identify with a particular religion or just more about your spiritual practice in general. Well, I've kind of moved past Buddhism in a lot of ways, but I, I still think Buddhism is, is the best place for someone to start leaving another religion or just as a secular, as a secular uh, person at all when getting into spirituality because it's, it's the most straightforward. It's a very cookie-cutter, just this is what it is. And, and Buddhism is just a philosophy at its core. And the philosophy really only has one purpose, to make us recognize the nature of suffering, which is through attachments, and how we can cease these attachments. So it's very simple. There's just the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. We recognize that there is suffering, that suffering comes from attachment, that attachment can be severed or transcended, and that transcension comes through the Eightfold Path. And what the Eightfold Path is, is the totality of Buddhism at its core. Now, there's a lot more, again, beyond it philosophically, as there is with anything. But really, all you need to know, if you are getting into spirituality, is to understand the Four Noble Truths and to mm-hmm. practice the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is just a philosophical lifestyle that revolves around everything we do as an organism, as a human being, as an entity. And all of the steps are considered right steps or compassionate steps. So there's right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right effort, right intellect, right meditation. There are, and all of these things, right mindfulness, right meditation, right speech, just mean compassionate mindfulness, compassionate meditation, compassionate speech. So if I'm practicing compassionate speech, it means to be mindful of what I'm saying. Am I speaking compassionately? Am I talking bad about somebody? Am I gossiping? Am I complaining? Is, is what I'm doing bettering my soul, myself, and helping me to detach, lovingly detach? We have, you know, um, right effort, compassionate effort. Is what I'm doing in everyday life done with compassion, done to better myself in the world? Or is it for selfish, personal wants and gains? Uh, a saying from the Buddha 
he once said, you know, it doesn't matter how long you practice or how deeply rooted you are in the philosophies of Buddhism. If you work in a butcher shop, you cannot attain enlightenment. You know, if, if, if we are doing anything out of these eight steps that is in opposite to them, that is regressive or destructive, it throws all the others out of sync. But when they are in sync, this wheel of Dharma begins to spin. It's eight full paths all locked together. And this is when nirvana is achieved, or we mm. awaken a state that is beyond suffering, a state of pure non-attachment. To live with love, but to have absolutely no attachments to anything whatsoever. That, that's nirvana at its core. And that, that, to me, is just a great place to start, because it's not revolving around gods, around worship. Even the Buddha said not to worship him whatsoever. It's just yeah. practice philosophy. You know, he was just a conduit to these these teachings. Mm-hmm. So that to me is why it's such a great tool. You know, there's there's no deed, there's no confusion, there's nothing controversial. It's just saying, look, we suffer because we are attached. Here's how we can detach, but continue to live with compassion and love as we do so. And that's what really about it brought me in. It's because it was so secular and it was so simple. And it's very very simple to practice if we align ourselves with it. If we put in the effort to remember these steps. Yes, it's it's a part of that's probably the one part of Buddhism that I really identify with is the eightfold path and it sounds like so you don't identify with Buddhism but you like to you listen to the wisdom and you apply it to your life. Is there are there other philosophies and other religions that you also think are really important for people to hear in order to help them discover and live their dharma? Very much so, you know. It's, it's less identification, more. I, I still practice, you know, the Eightfold Path very much, but yeah. it's, it's important again not to identify. When people ask me what I practice, it's a mixture of mainly Buddhism and Hinduism. We're going to take a quick break to share our love for our sponsor, Hum Nutrition, who has an amazing giveaway for three of our sponsors. And a side note, I'm honestly super skeptical about any brand that claims to be the cure or the magical elixir to all your issues. But seriously, guys, Hum really does seem to heal almost all. I... I'm going to be honest right now. I have had terrible digestion and chronic bloating since I got back from Bali a few months ago, and it put me in a funk for a while. So when a friend recommended Hum to me, I took, I decided to take the Flatter Me and Gut Instinct tablets, and now, well, let's just say I run a little more smoothly. And Hum is offering three of our listeners three months of $150 worth of Hum products for free, which is amazing. All you have to do is rate and review our podcast on iTunes, send a screenshot to info at yourownmagic.life and tell us that you want to submit for the HUM giveaway. Yes, and don't forget about receiving 20% off HUM nutrition with our promo code MAGIC. Ah, what about Hinduism? The the aspect of Hinduism I practice is what's known as Advaita Vedanta. And Vedanta is the ending of the Vedas, the ending wisdom of the Vedas. And the Vedas are the oldest religious and spiritual uh, text that we have on the planet. Hinduism actually was originally known as uh, Sanatana Dharma, which meant eternal Dharma, eternal truth. So while these Vedas are maybe you know, 7,000 plus years old, almost 10, that was only when they were written down. They've been taught for thousands and thousands of years beyond this. And when you learn about the philosophy of the Vedas and their teachings, that's called Vedanta. Now, there are what I practice is Advaita Vedanta, and Advaita is very important in awakening oneness in my life because Advaita means non-dual. 
non-dual. And non-dualism is really what oneness is. It's non-dual. Not separate. Not detached. All of that is illusory. And it's really just understanding the philosophy of what it means to be one with the universe. You know, I, mm. I, we can always say, and we hear in a lot of videos, and I even talk about it, you know, you're one with everything. You are the universe. And that sounds cool. But we don't really feel that. Sometimes we don't really have an understanding of what that means on an empirical level because we are human. We want to question this. We have to really trust something for it to work for us. That's why even uh, very religious people have their doubts is because there's no way to prove or disprove what they're learning in a lot of cases. So Advaita is more so a philosophical approach to oneness that uses empiricism or proof in a sense, explanations, arguments, uh, basically breaks down the entire philosophy and, and shows you that it can't really be refuted. That oneness really is the only way and the only true potential of what is. The same way that there can conceptually, we can think of things such as non-existence, right? But since we exist, since there is existence, since we are here experiencing, there cannot be non-existence. There is no flip side to that coin. Whereas in daily life, we see things as dualistic because we perceive things to have flip sides, right? We perceive there to be different emotions because we are happy or sad at different times. We see those as separate. In reality, they're part of a whole spectrum. Every emotion is interlocked. It just depends on what part of the spectrum we're at. The same way that with colors, all colors fade together on some level. Even when we get from black to white, we might think they're separate, but the shades of gray in between reconnecting becomes a spectrum, almost like a circle. So reality is like that. All these ideas of duality, of separateness that we perceive are part of a larger spectrum that we have to come to understand as interconnected. And so Advaita is, is the Hindu philosophy of how to understand this on a logical level, on a level that applies to daily life scientifically. So there is no doubt whatsoever. And with that understanding, we gain a lot of peace. But I will say Advaita is... Um, a lot more complicated if you're just getting into spirituality. It's one of those things that I'm glad I didn't discover until after <laughs> practicing for a few years because it can it's, it's really overwhelming. You know, it'd be like walking into calculus as a sixth grader. It, it may, might be something we can get later on, but if we start with it, it's really, really going to, to confuse us and maybe even push us away because, again, when we're, when we're beginning our path and we're in our ego, when we don't understand things, it's more likely we, we get offended by it subconsciously. You know, if we can't do something, we get upset, we want to, I don't want to do this. I'll throw this away and come back to it later. So I would definitely say, save it if you're getting into spiritual practice. If you already practice, look into Vedanta. But if you're just starting, I, I would I would personally say start with, start with Buddhism. Really get into the space of heart. And then once you have the experience of living with love and of feeling what it means to be compassionate, then start looking into the philosophies that transcend it and go beyond it so that you can get a full 360 way of living your life that's intellectual and emotional yes so living simply and that is the best way to begin the journey i love that um are there actually any books that you recommend for someone starting their spiritual path yes so the number one book that i recommend uh on buddhism is called buddhism plain and simple mm. and it's my author named steve hagan he's a, he's a buddhist teacher uh, it's the first book I really read getting into Buddhism. It's an amazing, amazing book. And it just kind of covers really the basis of pretty much all the necessary Buddhist ideals and views for you to practice this philosophy. Um, an another great book, like I said, is Be Here Now. It's a, it's a picture book, kind of. It's got a lot of words in it, but it's very simple, very, My very favorite. Yeah, yeah. It's great. <laughs> 
a great visual representation of a lot of the stuff we're talking about here today. That's wonderful. Okay, well, moving on, because we're really curious about this topic. Um, we loved your two different videos where you talked about both twin flames and soulmates and the concept of them, and we value your input. So one analogy that really stuck out was how, I think this was an, an analogy that you came up with yourself, and I don't want to butcher it, but um, how the souls are like a puzzle piece, and they are whole on their own, but when they combine, they create this masterpiece, a new lifestyle, and a way of living that seems to be complete and more beautiful, but first you broke down the soul on a scientific level, so if you can do that for our listeners, and then dive into the difference between the twin flame and soulmates, and how they may find theirs. Yeah, um, so, so I got a little bit of pushback when I talked about that because I don't agree with the idea of twin flames whatsoever. Right. Um, and that, of course, is a very big thing with a lot of New Age philosophies. Twin flame, it not only sounds cool, but it seems cool. And we're a lot of the time, especially in, in this day and age, we're getting really drawn to these kind of cool things. You know, That's why mm-hmm. astrology has made a comeback. Twin flames have gotten big. Tarot cards, readings, all these things yeah. that are little tools. They're, they're shiny above all else. You know, they're shiny and they're cool <laughs> pictures. And that really draws us in because we are on currently living in a society that's really based on gratification and, and mm-hmm. getting things aesthetically that please us. I mean, I even I run a crystal shop, so I understand that crystals are beautiful and aesthetically amazing. And since they have traits, that's why this mineral, opposed to dirt or a regular piece of granite, is what we wrap, in, we wrap around our neck. You know, it, it just depends on what we're drawn to about it aesthetically. But the issue with, with twin flames, in my opinion, compared to soulmates, is like you said, soulmates are already whole. Mm-hmm. We are all whole. There is nothing missing in any of us. And that is the beauty of soulmates, is that once we recognize our wholeness, we have the potential to meet another aspect or reflection of ourselves that is also whole on the same frequency. And you can combine. And once that combination occurs, it's why we see some of these, you know, these couples on social media especially that just are absolutely radiantly magnifying that that shine mm-hmm. on their own but together it's just like you're being blinded it's so pure it's so loving it's so it's so fluent and it, and it works so well together that that is true in my opinion soulmates are true in that sense now i don't think that we have a specific soulmate out of seven billion i think it's just whatever time and place we reach a certain certain frequency and we become whole is when we have the opportunity to run into somebody else who is also whole at that time yes and, and you align yeah. with them yes Exactly, you align. The same way, you know, there's not one magnet made for another magnet somewhere in the world, but when one magnet finds any other magnet that sticks to it in that way, boom, they combine, and now they're working well together. So it's kind of just (laughs) chance in a lot of ways, meeting our soulmates. But that's why the practice is so important, is it allows us to reach that level where we have the opportunity to meet our soulmate. Because I'm sure you guys would understand this, and I've had this happen, where you meet a soul that you can tell is there and whole and complete, but we are, you're just on different levels with that person. And so that, that soul connection doesn't, it doesn't pan out. It doesn't work mm-hmm. because there's a little bit of difference there. And we notice that all the time, that there is these, there are these slight differences. And that's why some of these soul connections, while they, they feel like they might work, don't, don't fully work in the long run. Right. But the issue with, with twin flames is a lot of the philosophy and, and what I see a lot, especially with teachers regarding twin flames is that, the twin flame completes us, right? That we are somehow incomplete and the twin flame completes us and it becomes one, that we need this other person to function. But I, I see those kind of levels and those parallels of needing very, very attached and that can lead to suffering. I think it's wrong to say that we need something externally 
to make ourselves internally whole. And I just, I just fundamentally disagree with it. So that's why mm-hmm. I did a video kind of on both discussing why I don't think twin flames exist on that level because we are, we, again, we're already whole. We're all of reality right here and now. So that, that idea of incompleteness is not there. It's just it's just Maya. It's just an illusion. It's just us depreciating ourselves. But soulmates definitely, soulmates definitely are there. And that is beautiful. I love that. And I love the analogy that we are all a whole puzzle piece, but we all carry a piece of the entire universe. And it sounds like this journey to love is really the journey from duality to oneness. And no one person or external thing can really bring us there. Um, But something I really love that you always incorporate is scientific perspective on topics that seem really hard for science to define, like the sacred science behind auras and chakras and the law of attraction. So I would love to hear more about your experience with these, starting with auras. Yeah, so the main reason I do that is because I try to with most of my videos. In some videos, I do have a personal perspective that I think you know, in my mind, should be expressed. But, but with most of my topics, I, I try to view it from a neutral vantage so people can decide for themselves. I try to approach it from both sides. And this is an issue that I saw before I ever made my channel was that a lot of spiritual practitioners and a lot of teachers, when they are practicing and preaching spirituality, they ignore science completely. The same way that most scientists ignore spirituality. But you have certain teachers like Tom Campbell, who's a scientist, and Bruce Lipton, Bruce Lipton, sorry, who, who embrace the spiritual aspect. And when they do that, you really understand, okay, there's, there is no duality between these two. They are interconnected, even if we don't see it. And so since I saw a lack of that, it, it's always been really important for me, as somebody who was skeptical and grew up very skeptical, to include this skepticism into spiritual practice. And that comes from science. Now, of course, not everything can be proven, disproven in a lot of ways, but it's important to try to understand it as such. And that kind of has to go with auras too, you know. In a lot of ways, we see things like um, I think it's called Kirkland photography is, is a big one. So there's things called Kirkland photography where they can take a picture of you and all these colors appear around your body and around your head, and they go, "This is your aura," you know, uh, through this photograph. But in reality, that's just a scientific effect of the heat of the air and a couple other factors that make those colors appear. And, and so the problem with that is, is blind faith. And that goes with auras, that goes with astrology, that goes with anything. I, I am against blind faith. And the Buddha was too. The Buddha even said, don't practice Buddhism because it's Buddhism. Break mm-hmm. it down. Question it. Debate it. And if it still stands at the end of the day, then you have something you can follow through with. So for me, I, I, have, I have no filter, although I try to do it as lovingly as I can. If, if something is completely unfounded, I will express that, hey, this is unfounded, and this is why. I'm not going to tell somebody your aura exists um, on this level if I can't prove it. I just I just personally, well, I can't lie to people like that. Uh, it sounds great, it sounds very cool, but I can only approach from a level of provability, especially if I don't see auras, and especially if science can't detect them in that sense. So that's how I'm going to cover it. I'm going to say, look, they can be sacred, they can be special. The same way the crystals can be sacred and special. But the scientific studies done on these also have their own opinion and their own view. And if you ignore one, you're being just as closed-minded as the scientists who ignore lucid dreaming and astral projection and these guru experiences. You know, it, it hurts both sides, whether we are a spiritual person or a logical, uh, discerning person. And so I think we should all apply that to, to every aspect of spiritual life, is bringing with us this level of skepticism and embracing science. Because when we do this, we get to really start to see 
world practices are founded, and foundation is essential. Foundation is pivotal to growth um, in a lot of ways. But again, I just like to cover topics like that because there's there's very few videos online that discuss it in such a sense, giving validity to both sides. There are valid valid statements and valid experiences from both sides, but we rare, rarely online find a combination of the two. We either get a video saying auras are completely bunk, or we get a video saying auras are super duper real for everybody and we can all see them and it's you know the, the, that is the problem is these absolutes and living with absolutes is, is destructive we can't live with absolutes because it's us clinging to a conditioned way of something being that's why religions don't get along because they have absolutes uh, if i'm christian and my god is my god i might not get along with a hindu because they see their god as their god uh, specifically and these, these, again, this absolutism is what really divides us and hurts us. It's why we have prejudice, why we have racism, it's why we have classism. We define ourselves with these practices. And that isn't just a socio-political thing, it's also a very spiritual thing. It goes with everything we do. And it's, that's why I kind of approach it that way, is I just want people to cultivate a mindset of, even when they see something interesting or beautiful or experientially amazing, to still have the ability to step back to that witness space again and go, wait a minute, let me really walk myself through this slowly and see if I can understand what's going on. It's the same way we can look at, you know, um, I'm sure you've seen those optical illusions where you look at it in one way and it's a rabbit and you look at it another mm-hmm. way and it's a duck. Yeah. It's kind of like that. You know, we, we see something first. So if I see the rabbit first, I'm going to go, oh, it's a rabbit. But if somebody else sees it, it's a duck, they're going to call it a duck. And then we're in absolutes and now we're fighting. And now we have a, a disagreement and now I don't like this person. And then, then it's duckists versus rabbitists, you know. So it goes with all things. If we can step back to the witness, we go, oh, it's both. Oh, there's no separation here at all. There is an actual foundation for the spiritual and the scientific, for the logical and the illogical, from the provable and the unprovable. And that's what I think is important. That's why I, I, I will make continuously and continuing on any topic like this, I will always make sure to let people know, hey, look, it, it goes both ways, and it's important for you to see that it can go both ways. And it sounds like absolutism is really what's creating a separation. So it, it's like you have this very healthy level of discernment, but also surrender and trust in the universe. And we there's so much information out there. I mean, you Google chakras and auras, and we'll just be flooded with information. And so cultivating that healthy level of discernment is so important. And I would love to hear more, like, how do you kind of sift through the information and find, okay, this resonates as truth in my heart right now? And that's, and that's exactly what you do, just what you said. If it resonates as truth in your heart, that's all that matters. It doesn't mean we have to make it resonate with somebody else. If it resonates with us, it works. And that's the biggest thing a lot of us don't do. Is if, is if we um, are researching and Googling all these different methods. You know, there, there are seven-pointed chopper systems. There are 100-pointed chopper systems. There are 11,000-pointed chopper systems. The problem is, is that if we pick one up and one of them starts to work for us, we get, again, we get into an absolutist mindset that goes, it works for me this way, it will only work for you this way, or it has to work for you this way. But that's not the case. And it, it's, I think that's our, you know, our ego obsessed with being right or being mm-hmm. correct. Is it just going to say, no, this is the way? Instead of it just saying, hey, yeah, it's a way. It's just a way. It doesn't have to be this way or that way. It's just a way. And so that's how I kind of see things like meditation, too. You know, there's not one right type of meditation. Whatever works for you is your correct type of meditation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, I that's how, yeah, as simple as it gets. It really is all right there. If it works for you, that is truth in your reality. 
Oh, I've fallen down that trap so many times to be like, this is the way until something finally resonates. And yeah, you're right. A lot of people sitting down and just breathing does not work for them when it comes to meditation. They find other forms such as running or um, drinking their cup of coffee in the morning. There are so many, a variety of different types of meditations, but also I don't think a lot of people give enough time to actually try the actual practice to see if that resonates. Yep, it's just switching it from this is the way to this is a way. Yes, I love that. Koi Fresco, people. (laughs) This is why we are so drawn to you on YouTube. You're... You give such a great in-depth analysis that is heavily researched and profound on a variety of topics. And we really just want, we wish that we could cover all of them and we just really want to pick your brain. Um, But one that we just cannot let you go and not let you escape from this interview without talking about is your experiences with astral projection. Because we have... We honestly have tried to do this in India. We did. We were doing. We were in the middle of a yoga nidra, lying there, and both of us. We both didn't realize we were both trying to astral project, but we were trying to astral project. It was wonderful, but it just didn't work out. Maybe because a lot of people were in the room. I don't know. But will you explain to the listeners what astral projection is and your experience, and then what you gained from it? Yeah, of course. And again, I, I think I have close to ten videos on astral projection, so feel free to go. <laughs> That's um, it's got a lot more than I can explain in this interview, but in <laughs> simple terms, lucid dreaming is becoming aware of our dream while we are in it, becoming conscious of our dream while we're in it. Astral projection is projecting a kind of spirit body outside of our physical body into this kind of experiential realm that is always different, and it is one of the most even that sentence you know it sounds ridiculous, it sounds outlandish, it sounds fake. Uh, but it's an experience that anybody can have. And if you look at forums online, if you do your research, there are millions of people who have experienced astral projections and can do so pretty much every night whenever they want. And that's really what it is. It's a, whatever this, this astral body is, they call it, that we are experiencing it from, has the ability to kind of manifest whatever that astral reality is. So if you want to fly, you can fly. If you want to go to a, you know, Mount Fuji, you can go to Mount Fuji, you can go wherever you want, do whatever you want, become whatever you want. It's amazing. It's like a video game in your mind. Uh, and it's, to me, I had my first astral projection at 19, I think, or was it 20? One of those two. Wow. But that for me, as I said, meditation changed my life on how I felt in the physical plane with spiritual practice. Astral projection destroyed my notion of thinking that I understand the universe, that I understand what existence is. You know, we get in this, this, again, the ego gets in this frame of reference going, I know what's going on, I get it, you know, because all the ego wants is to be, is to be um, cemented in what it thinks. It wants um, consistency. So it will take whatever it can. If it thinks something can be consistent, yep, that's reality, and it won't budge, it won't budge at all. It just wants to have that foundation. But when we experience an astral projection and we experience a different dimensional reality, it just destroys the ego in that moment and just it forces us to accept that I really not only do I have no idea what's going on but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what's going on on the on the largest scale of the universe of reality what it means why things exist at all why atoms somehow when they're stacked together become a conscious organism that makes no sense well astral projection shows us that look it doesn't matter because these experiences exist different possibilities exist it opens our mind up and that's what happened for me. You know, I had my first astral projection. I projected out of my body, and I was this kind of 
this, this, this kind of transparent blue self floating over myself, over my actual body in my room. And it, it freaked me out, but I, I got sucked right back in my body. I woke up, and I remember the first thing I did was I just started bawling, like crying. Mm. Not sad crying, but just, it was overwhelming. Wow. It was kind of like, like imagine if you die, you see an afterlife, and you come back. You start crying because it's overwhelming. Wow, I have an answer. Something is there. Well, in this case, it wasn't an answer, but it was an experience. An experience of getting that there is more beyond this reality. Because I just experienced it. <laughs> And it's not just a singular phenomenon to me. Again, millions of people experience this all the time. And the most interesting part about it is that we can't prove it in science. Our brain mm -hmm. doesn't register astral projections the way those dreams register in the hippocampus and different areas of the brain that are active as the body would be active in a lucid dream. The astral projection, again, it's, it's popping out of your body. So when you do this, you're not having the physical brain reactions you would have in a lucid dream. That's why it's unprovable. Because you're literally, on the conscious level, leaving your body. Your consciousness, in a sense, is leaving the physical body until it returns. And it's just, it's just one of those experiences that will fundamentally change the way you perceive reality. You'll open your mind more than anything else. And, and in Hinduism, they say, you know, experience is the strongest teacher. The guru, in, the guru love you feel, right, is the strongest teacher. You can read a thousand books on the Vedas. Of, on what love is, on what true love is as a, a, a fundamental aspect of life, of what true bliss is. But you don't fully understand that until you sit in front of bliss incarnate and you feel bliss incarnate from a teacher, mm. from anything. That experience transcends all of the words you just learned, all the books you just read mm -hmm. over 20 years. That's, the, that's why psychedelics are so profound and that's why astral projection just like it is so profound is that it transcends logic and it transcends anything we could try to learn through books or words yeah you it's can't really define it yeah you can't define it and it's just an experience that experience is, is, is life changing if you can have the patience to practice as projection and so that's why I make videos on it because I think it's a great tool for those who are skeptical like I was and who might think that there can't be anything more to have a projection because once you do <laughs> all those all those those thoughts will go out the window Wow, and do you think it um, maybe instilled some sort of faith that there is something beyond this physical world? I that think it's possible. I mean, that, that's not my focus. I, I don't really mm -hmm. care whether there is or not, but it, it opened me up to the, just understanding that it as a potential isn't some unlikely thing nowadays. Mm -hmm. that there's no doubt to it as a potential. There's just a, yeah, it's a potential. I think a lot of times when it comes to life after death and stuff like that, we, we might think it's possible, but we do so in a kind of negative way. Like, oh, I guess. I mean, I hope so. You know, there's, a, <laughs> there's a worry behind it. But once you have these experiences, you already have experienced one alternate reality. Yeah. So the fact that there might be another is just, oh, yeah, might be another. It's exciting. It's not scary anymore. It's not worrisome. And that's really kind of what happened to me was my, my fear of death really just disappeared in that moment. Why would I be scared of, of any possible nextness if I just experienced some version of something that isn't constantly in life? I love that you call it nextness because it really, it's this transition and so many yeah. people think of it as this great end to our consciousness. So I love that even on a scientific level, atoms just recycle and they transform. And so weaving that in with spirituality, it's, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, that's why I, I really identify with a lot of reincarnation as, as what's what life is you know not reincarnation in the sense of i have to come back as, as a pig or a cow or a flamingo but that my atoms and what was the essence of me on a conscious level and on a material level will recycle and will form back into life somehow 
Absolutely. It's it's like science and spirituality are just sisters. Um, question, speaking now that we're on the astral projection subject, though, if you had a time portal and you were granted the ability to tell 15-year-old Koi one piece of advice that would help him along his path, what would your one piece of advice be? You know, I've actually had this question asked to me before, and this, the sad truth is that nothing I, I would have said to myself at that stage in life would have changed anything. I probably would just would have said, you're going to be, I would just would have said, buckle up, <laughs> get ready for a bumpy ride. Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish the answer was something more philosophical or more emotional, but the truth is I was just at such a, an ego space, and I was so deep into drugs and, and into my, my, um. my material body as my reality that a future me saying something would have probably just made me roll my eyes or scoff, you know? Um, That's an honest truth, yeah. Yeah, I was bulletproof, I was independent, I could do whatever I wanted, the same way a lot of us when we're young, we think we're bulletproof until reality completely drops us on our head and shows us that we're not. Fine, fine, fine. How about post-jail Koi, then? What would you tell post-jail Koi? (laughs) I would just tell him he's on the right path. Oh, that's good. He is on the right path. You know, I, I, at the beginning of my path, I had doubts on spiritual practice and whatnot, whether or not I, it was worth it. You know, my struggle was, do I want to just keep living materially and in my ego and having these physical enjoyments, or do I want to actually devote myself to something deeper? And that's like, that's a quite a while to really, really understand and, and bear witness to the fruits of the spiritual practice. But uh, yeah, if I could have gone back, I would have just said, I would probably wrote myself a note. <laughs> And said, "Yeah, you're on the right. You're on the right path. This is this is where you want to go. This is what will work for you. This is what is necessary uh, for you to really come to uh, a better place internally and externally." I love that you made a commitment to love and to become love. You are love. All right. So we have some fun rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready to buckle up? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's go for it. Favorite childhood movie? My favorite childhood movie, um, Mulan. Really? Oh my Mine gosh. Too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ali's smiling from ear to ear right now. That's great. Chocolate or vanilla? Um, vanilla. Vanilla. So you have a crystal shop. So what crystal would what, you be? What crystal would I be? Mm-hmm. I would be Labradorite. Ooh, okay, and that's Allie's favorite. A lot of synchronicities here. That's <laughs> Allie's favorite crystal. Why would you we're be a Labradorite? Right? We're spirit Yeah, we're, well, we're linking up. Labradorite can, can look really rough in certain light, but when you actually, you know, when it, when it can hit the light correctly, you see the shine and the beauty and the iridescence in it. So I think that was a lot of me in my life. Uh, was very rough, very ugly, very destructive, but, you know, once the light really started to shine through, the, the beauty was there and the truth was there. And it, you know, it's still there, thankfully. And it will continue to be there uh, as I move forward with my path and journey. Mm, it is a beautiful journey. I love that answer. All right. I know you also liked rock growing up. So what is, was your favorite rock band? Uh, growing up, uh, ACDC for like, mm-hmm. classic rock. And for alternative rock, I would say um, alternative rock. Say anything. Oh, Yes. Um, what would you do on Mars for fun? What would I do on Mars? I would teach. I keep teaching. I love teaching. Always. You would just I, probably I, do the same thing. I think it would, be, it would be easier to teach on Mars because we'd have left this planet, so it wouldn't be some attack, <laughs> you know, God making life on this planet or some theological juxtaposition that would keep me from teaching. I would, I would love to teach about oneness on another planet. Yes. 
Love that. Well, then what about what career do you think you would have if you weren't doing what you are doing now, not teaching? If all of this wouldn't have came to be, I probably would have just continued on with the path that I was on before I mm. went to jail, which was just to, my dad runs a very big multi-million dollar business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't spoken in quite a few years, but I would have probably just gone to college out like he wanted me to, got in a business degree, and went to work for his company. But look at you now. Yeah, yeah. I just knew, you know, live, working, living the suit life wasn't, wasn't in, in the cards. No, that's not your calling. No, that's yeah. not your dharma. How about ideal superpower? Ideal superpower? Um, to make everybody feel love at uh, a moment's notice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Coffee? Question mark. Love it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Favorite quote? My favorite quote, uh, gosh, my favorite quote, my, I guess one of my favorite quotes right now is really simple, but it's by Ram Dass. My favorite quote is by Sri Ramakrishna, but it's a long one and I have it written down, so I can't remember it. Uh, my, one of my favorite quotes by Ram Dass is that suffering is grace and hiding. Mm. I think that's extremely potent for the one sentence it is, but you know, seeing suffering as grace and hiding is, is a great way to view suffering. You know, even if we're in our worst state, we have the ability to use that suffering to help us grow exponentially if we are open to it as a teacher. Mm. It's a great way to you know see reality as our teacher. That's what life is. Life is life is the guru. Existence is the guru. Everyone you meet is the guru. So mm. so if you can see the negatives as the guru too, as suffering as uh, just as important to growth as the positives, it really opens us up to a whole other side of what can allow us to grow and change. Agreed. So Suffering, suffering is grace and hiding. Be thankful for all your suffering. <laughs> and by recognizing all things as a teacher, you can really stay in that neutral witness. I love it. Yes. Uh, yeah. This is the last question that we ask all of our interviewees, and we would love yeah. to know, how would you advise people to create their own magic? Um, ma- magic in what sense of the word? their own really tapping into that infinite love inside of them like how would you advise them to create this life this awakened connected empowered life that you yourself have found on this path uh a few steps i would i would encourage them to begin meditation to practice meditating as the number one step for the physical vessel i would encourage them to use mindfulness and as they go about their day, there's a great tool that I used to use a lot that works really well, and that is to project love upon everyone you see. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're in line at the grocery store or at the bank or something, we might get fed up with the person in front of us or fed up with the teller. But if we're constantly just imagining us giving our love to them, just as if we're kind of injecting them with love uh, mentally, just transmitting our love um, telekinetically into them, it's hard to have any ill will towards any other being. And when we're, when we're pressing it and shooting off this kind of love into everybody we see around us, just actually doing it all the time, we start to really recognize the mirror of humanity. And that mirror is all of us as you know, little illusions of divinity, that we are human if we think we are. But beyond that, we're just this bliss. We're love. We're all of it, playing out different roles, playing out different bodies. And that's all illusion, too. So that's a great way to see one is to project love upon others. And then 
beyond that, all I would really say is, is, is have an open mind, but do your research on ancient history, on ancient practices, and find whatever philosophy works for you. Mm. You know, I was very into Buddhism for about five, six years. I still practice it, but I got kind of closed off until I, I met a co- couple of very, very dear Hindu friends who really, you know, just didn't force me, but just gave me some books, gave me some information, you know, told me to, you know, check it out, see what you think. And because I opened my mind back up, I started to learn much, much more. And I would say my practice over this past year has grown more um, than in the you know, previous four years combined because I remember what it's like to be in that open space. A lot of the time we'll find a philosophy that works and shut down and back again. You go, that's it. I got it. You know, that's the ego. I got it. This is my practice. This is all I need. Um, but it's important to stay open, to stay curious to everything. Even when a philosophy works, continue to research because there's more out there that has the potential to assist you. And the flip side is that if nothing else can assist you, well, now you're in a space where you understand and know that my path is the right path. That I tried all these other paths, none of them worked. Now I have proof that this is my path when I'm on now. So it's, it's a foolproof way that works in multiple ways to really help us awaken and help us down the spiritual journey, especially if we're just starting. I love all of that. And I think that if people apply all those steps, that really will also help them cultivate their own sense of self-love, especially when yes. they are resenting that person in front of them in the line that is bugging the cashier. Instead, if they send them love, then that helps them uh, get have a little piece of their own love, which is so beautiful. Exactly. It's just removing the blockages. And again, like the Course in Miracles, there's a, uh, a quote that says, you know, removing blockages is the only way to guarantee our own personal health and healing. So we, we can only heal when we remove all these obstacles. So it's important to embrace the obstacles so that we can move past them. Once we do that, we're, we're healing ourselves in the process and afterwards. Mm, that's that. my favorite Rumi poem, actually. Your task is not to seek for love. It's to seek and find the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. Oh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aw. thank you so much for sharing your magic your wisdom your love this has been one of our most powerful interviews and i'm really excited for our listeners to hear all of this i know i have chills thank you so much koi for your time as well so valuable um and can you also share with our listeners where they can find you on social media yeah, so you can find me, um, again, all of my handles on all my social media is just Koi Fresco. So Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, just Koi Fresco. Uh, my website even is just KoiFres.co, so mm. just the word Fresco. So brilliant. <laughs> last time I found it. <laughs> um, and then my YouTube channel is YouTube.com slash Koi's Corner. So K-O-I-S-C-O-R-N-E-R. And that YouTube channel is gold. So thank you so much. You are gold. You are love. We are so thankful, Koi. Thank you. Rom, rom. Thank you so much. Beautiful. We are so grateful you tuned into this podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes. Yes, and those of you who leave a rating and review, we want to share our gratitude by sending you a special gift. Just email info at yourownmagic.life and we will send you an exclusive meditation guided by the both of us. And make sure to say hi to us on Instagram. I'm at Allie Michelle L. Don't forget the random L at the end. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Raquel Mantra. Thank you. And have a magical day.
Thank you.